Email, email. Today is Tuesday, January 16th, 2018. Time for episode 43 of the Barnhart Podcast. We're back after a short time off. And I'm feeling a little bit left out that I didn't get a push notification on my phone about a ballistic missile inbound. And did you catch any of that Michigas firsthand or only via Twitter? I got nothing, man. I got nothing. But I was very, I was very edified to see that um, Frank Walker on Canon 212 did link to a very moving story about there was a family in Hawaii, uh, mother, father, and I believe four children. And they got the message and they immediately started praying the rosary. And then even after they got the all clear, they got in the car, went to church and all went to confession. Praise God. So there Absolutely. you go. That's that's how you handle that. Absolutely. And of course, if you uh, are, are somebody who is thinking, if, if the message came through right now while you were listening to this podcast that uh, a missile is inbound, if you're thinking, oh, crud, I would need to go to confession right now. Well, then just stop what you're mm. doing and go to confession. Um, exactly. I, I, I mentioned a, a phrase before and got some emails saying, hey, I recognize that phrase. Um, there, there was a priest who, who used to be in these parts who, who used to say from the pulpit that go to confession before you need to go, go to confession so you don't have to go to confession, which <laughs> you have to think about that one for a minute. But basically it means that go to confession before you fall into sin. And it, it, it's in addition to cleansing your soul from sin, it is also a, a way of, of uh, try not to use the word prophylactic, but it is a way of keeping you reinforced from falling into sin. Um, so it, it's, you know, the sacraments give grace in addition to um, bringing your soul back to life. If you are not in the state of sin, when you go to confession, it is a way of uh, bulletproofing or reinforcing you from falling into things. In addition to good habits, good companions and other things, uh, it, it's just a good practice to be in. So, Amen. Speaking of Twitter, you said you didn't get any updates via Twitter. Well, actually, you're not on Twitter anymore, are you? No. I, no. Gonna, I, I saw recently there's been a, a big kerfuffle about uh, shadow banning on Twitter. And I don't think that's why I didn't get any missile warnings. Um, probably because I don't live anywhere near Hawaii. That's probably the, the bigger reason. But uh, there's there's been a big stink recently coming out. Project Veritas, the, um, was it James Newman? James O'Keefe. O'Keefe, I think. Right. Yeah. I don't know why I was saying Newman. Anyway, he he did he just published some underground or undercover videos taken of uh, some Twitter engineers talking about the practice of shadow banning, and this is something that has been suspected for a while. And to hear confirmation from the uh, software people themselves that they do this, probably not that surprising. Not at all. In fact, you brought out you brought up the fact that I used to be on Twitter. Yes, I absolutely was on Twitter. And boy, it's been it's been years ago because I remember where I was living when I when I killed my Twitter account. So it's got to be like two or three, two, three, two or three years ago now. I when when all this talk about Twitter shadow shadow banning people came to the fore three or so years ago, I took a look at this and said, well, I'm, I'm not going to participate in this anymore. And there were some people that were absolutely stunned that I killed my Twitter account because, I mean, you know, I know that like Kardashians and people like that have millions and millions of followers. But I had eighty six hundred followers when I killed my Twitter account. That is and nothing I, to sneeze at. And I'm still surprised it's, it's that nothing you, to sneeze at. I'm still exactly. surprised that you, that you closed it down because um, you know just being on Twitter isn't an endorsement of anything that the liberal people who run that that outfit are, uh, are doing but you know it's it's a great tool for reaching out and communicating with people but yeah whatever but I uh, see I have exactly this point in my notes it's almost as like it's almost as if super nerd we plan these things in advance sometimes <laughs> although this one this one actually isn't um, I just jotted this in my notes you know while I was sipping my sipping my beverage here um, 
it's a, it's a good point that you bring up. Um, what I have in my notes is why, why, if you know, and I mean, everybody, if you haven't watched the, the, the most recent James O'Keefe project Veritas videos where, I mean, he's got these people just stone cold dead to rights against the wall. They're coming out and saying they hate you. They hate people like you. That is anyone who is to the right of Nancy Pelosi, basically. Um, they hate you. They hold you in contempt and they are, they, they told you so they are surveilling everything that you write and put on this with algorithms then beyond that, they do have human eyes. They have hundreds and hundreds of people on staff who are looking at not just the stuff that you're tweeting, and they fully admit that they're shadow banning people, they're killing people's accounts, et cetera, et cetera. They're also reading all of your direct messages, which you think are private. Um, I never used it for any direct messaging. That's all. I, I don't want anything to do with that. And we're going to segue into that a, a little bit in a little bit more depth in a few minutes. But um so they're they're totally surveilling you. They're shadow banning. They're they're basically abusing you. And it reminds me of the diabolical narcissist beating that drum again. But it's so true because what what they're essentially doing is they're looking at all of you and just exactly like a diabolical narcissist abuser, they're abusing you. They're caught. It's it's all on video. You're standing there staring at them and they look back at you and they say to you, you will never give me up. You will never walk away from me. And I know you'll never give me up. And I know you'll never walk away from me. And they get off on it. They derive diabolical satisfaction or what is uh, the technical term for it is narcissistic supply. And this is happening on a macro level. They're looking at all of us. And they are getting off on the fact that they can abuse us, they can be caught, it's on video, it's right out there in the open, and people just keep coming back for more. Why do you keep going back for more? Why do you continue to patronize these people? It, it reminds me, the, the, the analogy that I thought of just before Super Nerd and I started recording is what if you found out that a certain restaurant that you go to um, has been all along um, putting putting substances and, and bodily emissions and so forth in your food back in the kitchen and bringing it out to you and serving you food that has, you know, use your imagination, urine, feces, male emissions, whatever. They're, they're putting this in your food so that you can't see it, you eat it, and they're all standing there laughing at you and getting off on that. And you and then and then you find out that they're doing it. They're caught on video. And and so what do you do? You just go back to the same restaurant the next night. Why are you doing this? Why do you continue to patronize these clearly malignant people? Clearly evil malignant people with these massive corporate organizations you don't need this crap. This crap has only existed for a few years of your life. How can you argue that you need this? Not only do you not need this, but I think we covered this like two shows ago, the, the whole addictive quality of all of this social media stuff and how 
not only is the science saying, look, that this is all associated with dopamine and all of this kind of stuff. You're literally getting a buzz, a, a, a brain buzz off of this stuff. But these companies fully admit that they know this and are playing to this and are playing this this addictive dynamic to all of this. Then what what you know we're segueing in in terms of us and on the ground here in terms of you know the kind of people that we associate with or the people that we deal with online folks there there are people out there in the catholic blogosphere and i'm going i'm not going to name any names but my goodness i think most of the people you know if if you're if you're a trad catholic and you're listening to this podcast you're going to have a good idea who i'm talking about there are people in the trad catholic blogosphere who spend just enormous amounts of time, hours and hours and hours per day. And you can tell this because you can look at their their activities online and their activities on their publicly visible Twitter accounts and see that they're spending hours and hours and hours per day on Twitter just engaging in the most ridiculous, non-productive um wheel spinning, playing to playing to the basest, um, basest passions, intemperance, et cetera, et cetera. And Lord knows that I I have issues with intemperance and I get, I certainly get angry and get worked up. Okay. So one of the things that, that I kind of limit myself is that as we talked about, I think in the last episode, you don't engage haters and you, you, you just don't go there. Um, you don't, I don't allow comments on my blog. That's the context we were talking about it in the last show. But I mean, just this business of going out onto Twitter and just wasting your time, 140 characters at a time or whatever it is, thinking that you're doing any good. You're not, you're not doing any good in that context. If you want to sit down and, and, and write an essay, that maybe might reach one or two people. I, I posted a piece yesterday. I've gotten a couple of emails from people who've already said, Wow, I read the post you, you wrote yesterday about um, contraception and being, you know, permanently physically sterilized by either tubal ligation or um, vasectomy, and it it was an absolute stunner to me. I had never thought about it that way, and it just it just caused me to to stop and sit and think and realize that, you know, I have problems that I really didn't even realize that I had. You know, if one or two people says something like that, then thanks be to God, this this crap that's going on on Twitter, this is this is just ridiculous. And you see these same people, um, these these bloggers and these pundits, um, and especially in the trad Catholic side, these people are also on a fairly regular basis, openly publicly admitting, writing blog posts, um, stating that they are having a crisis of faith, that they're losing their faith, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, no kidding. I I wonder why that is. Look at how you're spending your time. Look at what you're doing. Now, again, mea culpa, pot calling the kettle black. I do not utilize my time, obviously, in the most maximally productive way that I possibly can. Um, that's one of the things that I, I pray for regularly at, at the end of my prayer supplications after after Mass is, you know, Lord, I'd really like to be more more productive in a formal way somehow. Um, if if that's your will, I'm I'm ready to you know 
be more productive again. I'm still in the prime of my what should be my working life, and I'm not. I'm obviously not working 40, 50, 60 hours a week or anything close to that. So I want to be more productive. But um, I'm also not having any sort of a crisis of faith either. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, anti-Pope Bergoglio is, abs- is not only not a, not a hurdle in terms of faith to me at all. In fact, looking at the totality of the situation, reconciling that to papal infallibility, the fact that the negative protection dynamic is completely holding true with Pope Benedict Ratzinger, who is, by the way, the worst pope ever, but the 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 charism of papal infallibility is not being breached by what he's doing he's because it's a negative protection and what ratzinger is doing is just sitting there and he should be speaking but he isn't but he isn't tearing the church down it's it's the anti-pope that's doing that i think a lot of these people are having these crises of faith because they keep trying to reconcile a false premise to the reality and it's driving them bonkers and they're spending all their time just squandering and wasting and engaging in in bad behavior, clearly bad behavior on the internet. Um, Facebook is the same thing. These people, they get into these chat groups on Facebook and they set up these private chat groups. I was asked to join one years ago. I I just kind of saw it. Um, it. It was shown to me, you know, what this group was about and what they were chatting about and you know, I, sh- I was shown some comments and so forth that, that were made in this private Facebook group. And it was the most, it was some of the most spectacularly filthy stuff I- I've ever seen. I mean, I- I- I'm pretty hard to scandalize. And there was some of that stuff that e- even to me, and I, you, you all know that I'm not, <laughs> my mind is not as pure as the wind-driven snow, obviously. Even I was taken aback at the filth and the, the base level of conversation that these people who are supposed to be trad Catholics are, are engaging in. And what, the, what this circles back to in terms of the original issue with, tr- with Twitter and what Project Veritas and James O'Keefe have exposed, namely that um, these people, these uh, tech nerds at Twitter are openly admitting that they're looking at people's um, direct messages and they, they were talking about this in terms of Trump. They're looking at, at Trump's Twitter and his direct messages and they said we would be perfectly willing if we saw the right opportunity, the right moment to leak his private direct Twitter messages if we thought that it would, it would take him down. Um, you people who are engaging these these um, paradigms online, be it Twitter, Facebook, anything, well, absolutely email. anything, email, email, it's all being cached. It's all being saved. It's all going on a server. It's all being read. It's either being read by algorithms, which um, the, the video that you just sent me, Super Nerd, goes into that. They're saying, look, we have algorithms that are specifically looking for certain keywords. I've been saying this for years. It's first algorithms looking for keywords, then and, and of course, with celebrities, automatically, I think that that human eyes are looking at this stuff all the time. These people will not hesitate, will not hesitate to use all of this stuff. And if you, I'm sorry, but you're just you're just idiotic if you think that anything you do on the internet 
is truly private. It isn't. And and furthermore, should you really be saying things, doing things, engaging in behavior in the first place that could be used to blackmail you? I mean, and there there are Catholic bloggers out there right now who if they had their their chat logs and stuff that they have in their private Facebook groups, if they had that stuff exposed, they would be finished. F-I-N-I-S-H-E-D. Finished. Right now. And um, they know who they are, and I hope this gets in front of them, and I hope someone points this out to them. Um, y- y'all, need to, y'all need to wise up. Y'all it, need to wise up. And, because and if this is the, a, the, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I'm just saying the devil will not hesitate to use any of this stuff. And you're you're a fool if you think otherwise. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, there it might come as a surprise for a lot of folks to realize that what you're saying by email, what you're saying in direct messages or, you know, whatever the equivalent for direct messages is on Facebook, uh, Facebook Messenger or whatever. Oh, it's encrypted end to end. Yeah, that stuff can all be recovered. And uh, if you think that any of that is truly private, um, this isn't to be a conspiracy theorist or or the government's watching. I mean, the NSA isn't. Doesn't, they've got all that stuff anyway. Uh, and and honestly, they're not looking for you. They're looking for Ahmed wanting to drive a, a, a an explosive filled uh, van in, into some government building. Um, but but when, the when, days are getting sufficiently dark that there will come a point where they're they're going to start coming after us. It it. I'm sure the beginning and the initial justification is we're looking for Mohammed Atta, you know, going to his um, flight training school and not having in- any interest in learning how to land the plane and messages about stuff like that. Sure, sure, that's how it starts. But y- you have to realize that it's just a matter of time before they start coming after us. I mean, you, you can see the violence and the, the seething hatred that that is in the rhetoric right now today. And it's coming and it's coming quick. Well, yeah, there's, there's always the, the theory that, uh, that, uh, some of the, some of the, uh, terror drills are, are, are built around the idea of uh, a homeschooler going radical and shooting up a public school for some reason, because it would be, it would be racist to, to, to set up our, our drills to say that a Muslim was doing this. Uh, so uh, part of me wonders if this is tongue in cheek or they're just baiting the people who, who want to see something. But in terms of, um, Companies like Twitter, Facebook, and, and all the rest, Google reading email, uh, there's a lot of machine learning algorithms going through all of this. Yes, there are going to be humans looking at your stuff from time to time. Uh, so <laughs> there, there's a good rule of thumb. If you don't want something broadcast on the Internet, don't send it via private message. And um, I'll, I'll have to find a, a good link here, but uh, there's there's a, a, um, a hackers conference every two years in New York called uh, Hackers on Planet Earth or HOPE Conference. And if you do a search for a guy's name by, by the name of Steve Rombaum, he used to give a, a talk called Privacy is Dead, Get Over It. And I, th- I don't know what it's called. I think, I think it's called uh, Privacy of Postmortem now. And he goes through all the techniques that have been available for 20 years that uh, big companies and, and, and uh, well, yeah, just uh, public companies, with publicly available databases, what, what uh, starting from one piece of information, all the data that can be pulled on you. And he says, everything I'm showing you, the government can do a thousand times more, especially since 9-11. So the, the idea that um, uh, companies are amassing all this data, cross-referencing it, uh, applying machine learning, figuring out who's a conservative, who's not, most of the time, 90% of the time, this is to figure out ads to show you. I mean, Twitter isn't running their service out of generosity. They're trying to turn a profit. And why their stock price is going up late, I have no clue, because 
Uh, it, it's a revenue losing model, uh, and, and when why mm-hmm. why Twitter has been chosen to have all, every single tweet and direct message, by the way, uh, archived in the Library of Congress. I, is Twitter really that critical? But uh, even 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 services like Facebook, they are going through all this information. They're they're capturing all the photos, the biometric IDs, everything, the the social graph and the social network. Um, even if you have never had a Facebook account. Facebook has a profile on you because if anybody you know took a photo and uploaded it to YouTube or uploaded it to Facebook and tagged you in that and said, this is Ann Barnhart, then Facebook can then start extrapolating uh, biometric ID after four or five people tag you in the photos, which, mm-hmm. by the way, they're getting sued now because it, Facebook admits they use all their data for marketing purposes and to, to build marketing profiles uh, in order to raise money because they, they sell advertising. Well, if you've never been part of their service and they're using your likeness in order to sell products and you've never agreed, that's called conversion. And I know this having been a photographer, I can't just take a photo of somebody walking down the street and use that photo without their consent. Even if they're in a public space, even if they're clearly over the age of 40, therefore over 18, I can't use a photo of them in a public space for the purpose of of doing something commercial without their permission. It's exactly Uh what Facebook is doing and it's why they're biting their tongue um, when they're getting accused of some things like, uh, for example, after this last presidential election, there, there's, there are some senators who want to start this big investigation because Russia or the Russian agents allegedly spent $100,000 worth of Facebook ads, which swung the presidential election. Yeah, right. <laughs> Anybody who knows anything about online advertising knows that pretty much 99% of what you spend on online advertising um, is wasted. And, and all, mm-hmm. all the consumption of that is, for the most part, fraud. But these senators are too dumb to realize this, and, they, and they're, what they're thinking is, oh, next time around, maybe I'll, all I need to do is raise $100,000, and I can win my Senate campaign. And Facebook <laughs> is trying to, trying to stonewall this and say, hey, look, if we give you a big enough donation, will you drop this? Because what, the, what any uh, discovery and, and investigation of this will learn is it's all a complete fraud. Russian agents could have spent $100 million on Facebook advertising. It wouldn't have swayed anybody because you know, the millennials are all, already knew who they were going to vote for or weren't going to vote anyway. I don't yeah. think anybody is swayed by any advertising for politic, political stuff on, on Facebook. But one of the other things we mentioned was the whole topic of uh, shadow banning. And it, I, I had, I'd heard the term before, and it was only in the last couple of weeks that I actually heard the way it was being defined in the case of, of um, Twitter. And the idea being is if, let's say you were on, on uh, Twitter still, and they decided to shadow ban you, what would happen is all of your tweets, um, you would tweet them. No one would see them. You would see them. And mm-hmm. anybody who wasn't signed in um, would could pull up your, your Twitter profile and see your, your, your tweets. But Twitter is meant to be used most efficiently when you're actually logged in. There's the social network aspect of it. But people logged in would not be able to see your tweets. Uh, as opposed to if you block somebody and they try to pull up your page on Twitter, they're going to say, this person's blocked. You're not allowed to see their stuff. This is a concept that, that I've known about for eh, almost 20 years now. Um, message boards, message forums online are notorious places for bad behavior. Just look at mm-hmm. YouTube um, comments to see an example of this. And so there was a, an ex- there was a, a feature in, in certain message board forums called a bozo bit. So somebody who started foaming at the mouth or just, you know, instead of the, the, the analogy was uh, instead of showing up at the park to play chess, they showed up at the park to turn over tables and throw chess pieces around. Well, you, you flip the bozo bit on this person. So whatever they say in the forum, which requires a login, they can see 
what they're saying and they think everybody's ignoring and laughing at them or just or just ignoring them so mm-hmm. they don't get the social rush of ticking people off and uh, everyone else has the benefit of a quiet room now and unless mm-hmm. this person signs up with an, another account to realize that everything they're posting is not even being visible anymore bozo bit shadow ban same idea now should twitter be doing this um they're a private company they can pretty much do whatever they want but when you when you are in a position where you are presumed to be a communication medium at the level where the Library of Congress is cataloging every tweet that's ever been made, you start to get into a, a phase where or in, into a status where you could be considered a common carrier. And if AT&T said, oh, we don't like um, let's pick on a good one, David Duke, because he's an avowed racist. If you ask him, he will tell you he's a racist. Mm-hmm. We're not going to give him phone service or we're going to intentionally um, degrade his service uh, when he makes phone calls to people or just randomly drop his calls. Because AT&T is a common carrier, if they were to do that to him, he would have grounds to sue them for breach of contract. They He pays for uh, voice service or, 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 yeah, let's just stick to phones for now. Telephony, he pays, he, yeah. He pays mm-hmm. for, for, for voice service or AT&T or whatever the local phone company is. They are supposed to give him the that service. And if they are intentionally meddling with him, then they are in violation of terms of service, standard civil contract. But by virtue of being a common carrier, there are some other uh, uh, protections that they, they enjoy along the way, but also some more responsibilities as well. Twitter is not a common carrier, but there also aren't just any service online. So, yeah, they, they clearly are, are leaning left, but, um, you know, yeah, there, there are people who say, let's, let's open up a competitor to Twitter. It ain't that easy. <laughs> There's some serious engineering that goes into building a service like Twitter. And anybody who's looked at um, the new... Gab. And, um, and that's run by a musloid. So I looked at that initially, but then as soon as I saw it was run by a musloid, okay, nope, never mind. Nope. No, I was thinking of um, Mastodon. Um, and that's just one client for an open social um, social media network. And that, again, that it's it's... It's nice that there are open open network protocols for doing social networking. I mean, it's nice in the sense that anybody could do this, and so there there could be some uh, de- democratizing of anybody could could set up their own little private service and whatnot. But that is a non-trivial scientific or uh, computer engineering challenge to build something like Twitter. And even the Mastodon people have figured out that this is really hard to do. And mm-hmm. and setting up your own server, for example. Um, that can cost hundreds of dollars a month just for, you know, hosting, you know, for example, are, are you going to set up a server that allows people to, to put out images? I mean, Twitter hosts more images and videos than any website other than YouTube and Facebook at this point. Yeah. Um, that may be true. I don't know. I may have just been making that up. But the, but if you if you look at, <laughs> I, I should source that. Okay, I, tell, I, I did just, I, I, it probably would not be surprising how, how, how much they're hosting. Um, what is, what I'm, what I'm not making up here is that I know of people who have set up uh, Mastodon servers, which is just, it's open source Twitter is what it is. And the complaint is that it was costing hundreds of dollars a month, um, way more than, than they thought it was going to. And it was all about image store, uh, image hosting, and then the bandwidth for, for pushing images around. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the, the popular Twitter feeds, uh, there's a lot of images out there. There's a lot of video. Why, why Twitter is getting into the video market, I have no idea. So the point is that even though I... Okay, I apologize for making up a, a, a stat there, but it, it, the the point is that Twitter has a lot of image storage, and and that costs money. And and plus, there are some other software engineering um, things you have to to do to do right in, for Twitter. For example, you send once and only once. That's not trivial to implement, uh, especially at the stage at, at the the scale that Twitter is. I mean, you you literally have billions of people using this at any given time. 
you have um, Wall Street constantly scouring Twitter feeds. There was something where uh, it, was, it was a test or somebody just wasn't paying attention and posted something by accident by one of the news services um, a few years back saying it was something along the lines of there, there's been a, a, an event at the White House and the president was shot. And, and it was somebody, I want to say NBC News, uh, that somebody did that by accident. They were, they were goofing around testing or something like that. They deleted it within about uh, a minute or so. But just in that brief period of time, you had the, um, the Wall Street um, uh, yeah. artificial engine or artificial intelligence engines constantly scouring things like Twitter feed to feed into the, the AI engine. And yep. so in, in any kind of destabilizing event like gunshots at the White House, there are certain stocks that are going to start falling immediately. And, and there was a reaction on Wall Street swan. within yep. just a few. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Even if it's by accident and even if the all clear comes out within a couple of minutes. I mean, what if that nuclear missile alert was for New York City and it wasn't on Sunday morning, but it was, say, 10 on, on, on Monday morning? Mm-hmm. Even when the all clear comes out. There will become, yeah, it's a, it's a black swan where even the, 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 the initial moves in the market are going to be so pronounced and set off so many other moves that you can't put that genie back in the bottle once it starts. Even though you call all clear, you've now triggered every AI connected to the, to the financial uh, markets, which is another. And, and remember, most of the financial market liquidity now, the vast, vast, vast majority of it, like in excess of 90% of it is algorithms. So if you trigger a black swan, it's the notion that, oh, we just say, oh, stop, like with human beings, where, you know, the the news comes onto the floor, all of the traders are standing there doing the open outcry, like back in the day, and the news comes across, no, false alarm, stop, everybody stop. And everybody does. And then, you know, they start buying and the, and the market comes back. You have these algos and you stop running these stop loss orders and stuff like that. And, you know, you start hitting these targets, you know, as the market falls and more and more and more and more comes in. It, it's like a it's like a nuclear chain reaction. At some point, it's just it's going to go it's going to go critical mass and that'll be the end of it. It might be beneficial to, to define the term black swan as well. Well, a black swan event is just, you know, anything that hits the market that that causes that triggers a massive instantaneous sell off, a panic, a, a panic type of a sale. Is, isn't one of the critical aspects, though, it, it was something unexpected and uh, therefore unpredicted, something that, you know, for example, if um, Ross Perot, is he still alive? Let's say he announces tomorrow he's going to run for president and somehow or sell. OK, if Warren Buffett says he's going to liquidate all of his holdings in uh, Microsoft, that could trigger responses that could you know, severely destable Microsoft's, you know, stock price or whatever. It, the point is that it, nobody could have predicted uh, that it's going to happen. It was completely unforeseen. And even in a situation where it may have been fake news that started, started it all off or a shift change, somebody hit the wrong button by accident and the news alert goes out through upper New Jersey that there's a, a missile inbound. Well, even if that gets recalled within a couple of minutes, that can set off a chain reaction, which can't be taken back. And it, having all been unanticipated and people start doing things, you know, by, by snap decision. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, the, the fake becomes real at that point because there really is a market tremor at that point. People really are going to be, or at least algos are going to be on opposite sides of these trades. Somebody's going to make money. Um, and, and then there's the question of who had previous knowledge and it just sets off, you know, all kinds of things that aren't, aren't pleasant. 
But, yeah. uh, and it all ties back to, you know, Twitter. A lot of this stuff is running on artificial intelligence. Um, mm-hmm. Human beings aren't necessarily looking at every single thing, but they have also said in the case of these uh, Veritas, Project Veritas videos, there are people actually looking at uh, Donald Trump's uh, direct messages and some of his other content that stuff that, you, that should be, <laughs> air quotes, should be private. Uh, you shouldn't be digging through that. And I haven't read Twitter's terms of service, so I don't know if they actually say whether or not that's private to them or not. But is it and surprising? Another, another point that know. keeps being made over and over again in the Project Veritas videos, and you know, this I don't think that this applies to our audience in the same percentages that it, that it applies to the, the, broad, the broad culture type audience. But they said there's just a massive amount of pornography of, you know, self-produced pornographic images constantly flowing through through Twitter and there are people looking at all of that. I mean, as well uh, as the stuff that Anthony Weiner was producing. Well, yeah, in addition, in addition to the Anthony Weiner pornographic oeuvre, there's apparently a whole lot of other people that are doing crap like that. And um, I mean, obviously, we don't need to get into that because that's just that's not the domain of our audience by and large. But it's just it's just another example of you know, what in the hell are you people thinking? And kind of, you know, getting it back to what we were talking about with, you know, trad Catholics and so forth, behaving badly on the internet. And, you know, we're having this discussion about, you know, what's private, what's not, should these companies be doing this? Should these companies not be doing this? What about privacy? Let's let's hasten to add and, and remember that character is doing the right thing even when nobody's watching. Why, why does whether or not anyone's watching at Twitter, why does that have, or Facebook, why does that have anything to do with it at all? And really the whole, just the saying, character is doing the right thing when no one's watching, that's actually a nonsensical, that's a nonsensical saying, because of course, God Almighty is always watching everything you do. There, there is, in, in a certain sense, you, you should never go through your life thinking quote unquote, nobody's watching that that actually betrays a a warped morality. There's there's something wrong in your mindset. If that kind of thought process even goes through your mind ever. Well, nobody's watching. Well, excuse me, what do you believe? What do you believe? Will we be judged by Jesus Christ at our particular judgment? Yes or no? Is, is he not watching? Are we going to be musloids now? And, you know, Allah is busy inventorying the deeds of men on on Thursday night. So that's when we can all get together and engage in perverted sex acts. And I'm not kidding about that. Um, that's that's actually something that is that is taught to um, musloids, largely because so many of them are inbred and their IQ bell curve has shifted back so far that they believe things like that. You know, uh, this Allah is supposed to be an omnipotent, quote unquote, God, but yet he's busy on Thursdays. And so therefore he's not watching you and you can do what you want. I mean, I've, I've covered this in some of my writings and videos on Islam. This is, this is how completely stupid Islam is. But the interesting thing is, is that you see people across the board kind of slipping into that sort of a mindset. Well, it's okay. This is private. Oh, this, it's okay. Nobody's going to see this. What, what is that? What kind of warped morality is that? You know. So, my position on the whole thing is: is with Twitter, Facebook, all this stuff, 
why, why are we continuing to patronize these services? Why are we continuing to go into this diabolically narcissistic abuse dynamic where the abuser is standing over us saying, you'll never give me up. You'll never walk away. And we just keep playing into this. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it? And I think it's pretty clear that the answer is no. Well, and even in the case where somebody is, you know, trying to build their online reputation or online brand for, you know, traditional Catholic blogging or, or whatever, um, there, there's still the, let's say, least efficient use of time. And, and you made the comment about people being on social media for hours at a time. Mm-hmm. I will say that it, I, I wouldn't say they're hanging out on Twitter the whole time. They're probably doing something else and get the alert popping up on their screen or on their phone and they stop what they're doing for a few seconds and fire something back. Okay, first off, that's not the best way to have a discourse with somebody, especially with somebody who's just trying to get your goat about something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the pig wrestling isn't going to convince anybody of anything. Pig wrestling, that's good. I don't know who you're talking about exactly, but I, I've seen some people online who, um, I'll, I'll just say that um, instead of a contest are people who like to try to get you into, into an argument, and of course you can never convince them of anything. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's no point in having an argument with them for the most part. And feel free to email me if you want to. I'll, I'll just ignore it. Um, but the, the, the point is that, that um, you can build an online reputation and an online brand, so to speak, to use a, a, more, a more modern marketing term, without Twitter, without uh, Facebook. Or if you're going to use those, use them as send-only mechanisms. You can turn off all the alerts. Um, just because somebody wants to talk to you doesn't mean you have to listen to them. I mean, half of the day, my phone is on airplane mode because that's a tool for me to contact other people, not the other way around. I mm-hmm. set up Twitter the same way. Yep, exactly. And I, the, when I had it, I didn't use it to engage with people hardly ever. The reason I had it, and it, listeners out there who have been looking at Barnhart.biz for years and remember it back in the day, if you if you have Twitter, you can put it on the sidebar of your blog and it'll show like your last four tweets. And what I used it for was like a micro blog on my blog, wherein if I wanted to draw people's attention to a certain, you know, article, whatever, I could tweet it without having to write an entire blog post on my blog about it. So I would tweet it and it would show up on that sidebar on the side of my blog and then people would say, oh, there it is. And they could click and they could just click on that link. It was what I was using it for. Essentially, it was as a microblog. And I, it seems to me that the, the way I was using it, that super nerd or somebody could probably write some code to accomplish exactly the same thing. Just put a, a microblog on the side and it would just post links with maybe um, a, a, a hundred characters of, of my comments, up to a hundred characters of my comments or something like that. That's what I used it for. This business of using it to converse with people, never. And the whole argument about, well, you need all of these things to build an, a, an online presence and an online reputation. I, I, I would have to disagree with that. So I've never had comments on my blog, ever. I've never allowed comments on my YouTube channel. Um, I, used, I used Twitter as a microblog, not really to engage people, and I quit it years ago. Um... And, you know, I, I, I get pretty, pretty decent traffic and I get more traffic than a lot of these people who are spending all their time trying to, you know, engage and use social media and so on and so forth. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because of the quality of my content. Maybe if you just write something intelligent and interesting and occasionally witty, 
people people will just come and read it, read what you write, or look at your videos, or listen to your podcast. Um, you really the notion that we oh we have to be tweeting we have to be doing these things not really i i don't think so i think you can build a, i think you can build a reputation just fine without these things oh and i've never had facebook either um so there you go well there's there's also an element of the medium being the message as well and twitter is is obviously shorter messages but also the the idea is that somebody's going to communicate more frequently and facebook is different uh, but the idea being that if you're sending out you know, 20, 30 tweets a day, they're going to be superficial, but there's going to be the, the frequency of contact that gets back into that you know, endorphin uh, hit thing that we were talking about earlier. Whereas if your preferred mode of communication is to publish an essay whenever you write an essay, but it's going to be you know, 10 paragraphs, well thought out, beginning, middle, end, exposition, links to resources, and all the rest – People aren't going to be compulsively hitting the refresh button on your on your web page to see if there's a new a, a new article out. Um, it, it, it's a different mindset in terms of what you expect and and how it's delivered as well. So long form serious content, you're not going to you, you're not training people to continually hit F5 to see if if there's new content or Command R for you Mac people uh, uh-huh. to see if there's new new uh, content out there. Um, it's just. I, I, one of the things about about the modern technology is it tends to degrade uh, the way we communicate, and we've gone from writing. You know, people used to decry the fact that we didn't that people weren't writing letters as well as they used to. So in the '90s, people were writing short letters with with um, shorthand grammar and not the mm-hmm. essay form letters that that used to exist prior. Now people mm-hmm. don't write letters at all, and yeah. it, it, initially the problem was people only communicate by email. I think that would be a massive step up for a lot of people if they were able to write coherent long form essay emails, it, it's, it's the kind of thing in business that, or as a, as a programmer sets you apart, if you can actually articulate thoughts over a you know five paragraph email and I, and that's actually a, con, a concise way of doing it as opposed to four or five pages. Cause I didn't have time to edit it down to paraphrase Mark Twain. But the idea being that, that um, the, the easier the communication gets, the more it caters to laziness and sloppiness and the worse we get at communicating. So, Maybe it would absolutely. Do- I see not infrequently um, just you know being in public and you happen to to catch a glance of somebody's phone, um, and of course you know not not eavesdropping, not trying to read, but you just you see the screen of their phone. And with um, teenagers, with high school age or college undergraduates, I I am continually shocked at how often I see them, and they they clearly have some sort of a a messaging app open if it's WhatsApp or whatever it is. And there's not even any any text. It's all emojis. They they are literally communicating exclusively with emojis. And you'll see, you know, like it'll be six consecutive hearts, four consecutive, you know, kiss, kiss, kiss. Um, it, I mean, it's it's insane that they aren't even using words anymore. That's that is how degraded it has become. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up, and it's it's scary. It's really scary. Oh, that's that's a big win for uh, cross cultural communication. You don't, you didn't understand the significance of that. Uh, whatever diversity is our weakness. <laughs> diversity well, it, is our weakness. It, it also underscores the the popularity of, of websites like Pinterest and Instagram, where the whole idea is about sharing images. Um, I've heard it argued that that um, this, this is a way to uh, communicate across language boundaries because the image is the message at that point, which 
again, go back to what, what we just talked about with, with regard to forming intellectual ideas and putting them into writing. It is a, it is a, a um, highly refined skill to be able to tell a story or to communicate a message effectively with an image. And professional photographers have a hard time doing this. Do you think somebody mm-hmm. with, with a, um, a mid-level Android phone and, and five minutes of training is going to figure this one out? Well, and in terms of cultural diversity, I'm sorry, but if you move to a different country where they speak a different language, you need to get your ass in school and learn how to speak the native language. I'm sorry. That's just that's just a simple, basic courtesy. And to not do that shows a narcissism and a a, a lack of charity. Um, you, you are obliged to learn how to speak and communicate in the culture that you live in. And I think it is absolutely, utterly disgraceful when people move to a different country and then and then categorically refuse, refuse to learn the native language of where they're living. It is absolutely shameful. Yep. And um, I, I suppose somebody could, could look at this and, and call you a Miss Anne for saying that, couldn't they? Right on. I, I <laughs> nice segue there. <laughs> so um, I, I linked a couple of, oh, it was on the, the nuclear strength toothpaste post. But thanks for that, by the way, super nerd. So, you know, I'm reading about this and somehow or another, it led me to the Wikipedia page on ethnic slurs sorted by race. And obviously, this is this is a must-have bookmark. So I'm 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 reading through this thing, I'm scanning through this thing quickly as one does. And what do I come across? Let's see if I can pull this up here. Um, under the African European crossed ethnicity section, what do we have? Anne, A N N, Anne. Quote. A white woman to a black person, or a black woman who acts too much like a white one. While Miss Anne, also just plain Anne, is a derisive reference to the white woman, by extension it is applied to any black woman who puts on airs and tries to act like Miss Anne. And that just, that made my day. It, it might have made my entire week. Um, my name is an ethnic slur. So, is, is this um, like the female version of Uncle Tom? It's I'm not kind even, of. I'm not even yeah, entirely sure if that that. I, I, honestly, I'm not entirely sure what Uncle Tom. I know it's a reference to Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and all that. But well, it's one of those me, terms that's like thrown out so much. I have it. I have the definition right in front of me. Oh, awesome. Uncle Tom, U.S. minorities term for an African American, Latino, or Asian who panders to white people a sellout from the title character of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Wait, when did this become a pan-racial, as long as you're not white kind of inclusive thing? I yeah, thought this was only I've, for... I've never, I've only ever heard Uncle Tom used referring to black people, but... Well, the, um, the, the biggest one that comes to mind in terms of the, the label being applied was, was um, why would I blank on his name right about now? Um, the Supreme Court Justice. <laughs> I should know this Clarence one. Clarence Thomas. Yes, him. <laughs> Yes, Clarence Thomas. Yes, all all the time referred to as an Uncle Tom. Um, and so I was thinking, super nerd, I think that perhaps, I mean, it's not fair for my name to be a racial epithet and your name to not be a racial epithet. I was thinking of perhaps floating the idea to you here that we rechristen you as Supercracker, which I think would be pretty awesome. 
but you know, it's up to you. And then as I was kind of thinking about it, I said, well, nerd is kind of a pejorative and it, it kind of is generally exclusive. Well, it's not exclusive to white people because it's, it's Asians too. But I mean, super nerd has a little bit of a pejorative to it. But if, if you, if you, if it's, if it's, you know, consuming you and you're totally jealous and you want your name to be a racial epithet too, I can call you super cracker. And we can we can kind of transition to that if you uh, want. I really couldn't care less. You can call me Susan if it makes you happy. <laughs> no, no, no. You're we don't we don't buy into all that nonsense. No. <laughs> now that'd be cooking up a whole different kind of trouble. Speaking that of that, is a different show. That yes. is episode forty-four. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I bring that up because because we were talking beforehand about about a uh, a cooking show. One of the one of the few TV type experiences you actually uh, find uh, recommendable or worthwhile. It's the it's pretty much the only television thing that I engage in anymore. And it's America's Test Kitchen. And I just wanted to put a plug out for this um, because I I maxed out, you know, I was I'm kind of dumb and I maxed out my uh, memory on my laptop because I downloaded a bunch of episodes of the only television show that I watch anymore and have watched for years and years and years. And that's America's Test Kitchen. Love America's Test Kitchen. Um, have watched it since the very beginning. Let me tell you the story of the first time I saw America's Test Kitchen and said, okay, this is awesome. It's like the first or second season, probably the first season. So they come on and they say, all right, today we're going to talk about mayonnaise. And they said, you, we have tried as hard as we can to make mayonnaise. We have made dozens and dozens and dozens of batches of mayonnaise and the conclusion that we have come to is that nothing we have made is even remotely close to as good as Hellman's mayonnaise and I was like these people are for real and I was loyal from there forward because I have a personal devotion to Hellman's mayonnaise and for them to admit that and just come out and say, you, you can make all the mayonnaise at home that you want. You buy a blender, do this, that, blah, 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 blah. It's never going to be as good as Hellman's. So you might as well just go buy Hellman's. Okay, these people are serious. This is like scientific up in here. So I've been watching this show. It's been on for almost 20 years now, I'd have to think. It's on public television. So a couple of years ago or a year ago, the guy who was kind of like the face of it, who, in my opinion, was the weakest link because he was kind of a snot. He was kind of full of himself. But the show was so good that, you know, you just kind of ignore him and, and just listen to all of this excellent information that these people have. Oh, and I used to buy the, the magazine, too, Cook's Illustrated. They would have it in the rack at the checkout at the grocery store. And it doesn't have any um, advertisements or anything in it. And I, I would pick that up. So... Um, a year ago, the guy, I think his name is Christopher Kimball, he like stabbed them all in the back, back and left and has started up a competing thing, whatever. And they've just kept going without him. And it's, it, it's even better now than it was before. So, um, you know, America's Test Kitchen, that that's the one thing that that's my guilty television pleasure is that I do download that and I do watch that just because I've learned so much. I use stuff that I've learned on America's Test Kitchen all the time, all the time. And, you know, I was no slouch before. I My earliest childhood memories as a tiny, teeny, teeny child, like two years old, was watching 
cooking shows on public television. Um, I've always loved cooking shows. Julia Child, when I was a little kid, that's that was the main cooking show that was on. Always, always, always loved cooking shows. Always found it fascinating. Love to cook myself. Um, but yeah, so there you go. America's Test Kitchen. And it's even better now that, that the guy isn't on it anymore, in my opinion. So there you go. And do they do a lot of um, trendy diet stuff like uh, ketogenic or South Beach or anything like that? Or is it just straight up normal cooking? And no, it's mostly straight up normal cooking. But one thing that I have learned from them and appreciate very much, and I think fits into the ketogenic diet, is I never I have to think about how to pronounce it. Quinoa. Do you know what quinoa is? Oh, yeah. That, that kind of pseudo, I think it's a seed, but it's like a pseudo grain, but it's gluten free. That stuff is good. That stuff is awesome. And they they kind of, they they have a couple quinoa recipes generally per season on the show that they that they produce and I've turned on to quinoa. It's a it's a really cool kind of a starch substitute, but it's gluten-free, you know, it's it's really cool. You can make wonderful salads out of it, you know? It's uh, what would what would it be like? Kind of like um you know, like if you made a barley salad or I was gonna um, say it's kind of a rice substitute almost and, and if you almost if you, a rice substitute, yeah, but I think it's a seed. That's it, why it, it doesn't is, have it is gluten. a seed, yes. And, and yeah. if you're listening, you're you're wondering what this is. It, it, it looks like it should be pronounced quinoa. It's yeah. Q-U-I something or after that. Uh, just just say quinoa and and uh, somebody with purple hair will show you where it is on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But it, but it's cool. It, oh, it cooks up like, um, oh, what's that stuff called? Couscous, which is pasta. Couscous is pasta. Quinoa cooks up like couscous and it gets really fluffy and you fluff it like, like that, kind of like rice, kind of like couscous. Oh, I think it's great. And make salads out of it and kind of put a vinaigrette on it. And Oh, yum, yum. So, well, if you're going to bring up all that, you have to post a recipe at some point. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I have one, a quinoa salad with um, pomegranate, mint. What else? Um, avocado, if you can find it, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll post that recipe. It's really delicious. Okay. Um any other, I'm out of my notes for, for now, unless there was something else you wanted to bring up. Um, let's see. Do, 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 do. Oh, the only, <laughs> I want to put a plug in. I, I think I sent this link to you and we can put this in the show notes too. It was really sweet. Um, there's, there's a small Catholic blogger who goes by, I think it's a handle, Dymph, Dymphna, D-Y-M-P-H-N-A. And I saw this Frank Walker linked to this little post and she made a little post that said um, the best the best things in 2000, that happened in 2017 and top of her list was Frank Walker at Canon 212. And she said, that's the first um, website that I, that I check every day when I turn on my computer. And then about the third or fourth item down was the Barnhart podcast. So just wanted to give a little shout out and we'll put a little a little link to her in in the show notes. So thank you, dear. I appreciate that very much. And um, <laughs> glad glad we're making somebody happy. I'm, I'm glad to be at the top of a top ten list instead of the other end of it. So that <laughs> that's cool. Uh, we had some had some more emails come in, and it, I was I was joking in the pre-show that we need to do a a a, a um, an episode at some point combining uh, cryptocurrency, cooking, and what was the third one? Uh, dieting. So the, the idea of, of, of our, of our, our, our we, we get more emails from these three topics alone uh, than anything else. And, and uh, one of the, the funnier comments that came in talking about uh, the, the, what, what backs up currency and, and what, what is the faith and credit of, of the U.S. Uh, government. And I made the, the comment that it was uh, the military. 
And somebody wrote in with a phrase here that um, the U.S. dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. <laughs> I yep. just thought that was an awesome comment. It's like, yeah, why, why don't true. Yeah. Why don't civilized countries mess with us? Because th- we have a lot of those things and we, we can deploy them as well as our Marines. So, And we, you really can't make the argument anymore that, you know, it, it, seriously, that it has anything to do with the government. It, it started out that way. And I have I have a little micro post about this and I'll find it and I'll repost it. It's the anecdote of how the U.S. became a major global economic power. Um, and I think it was, oh, it was in the run up to the War of 1812. Um so that the the U.S. had founded a um, basically the first iteration of the Federal Reserve, and they were unwinding this thing because the charter expired. Right, the first bank would, of the United States. First bank of the United States. Would that it were that you know that will happen again someday. Um, and so they're they're unwinding this thing. Everybody sees that the War of eighteen twelve is coming. They know that that they're going to go to war against the United Kingdom. One of the major depositors in the First Bank of the United States was, in fact, British, British depositors. And so the, the question was asked, we are getting ready to go to war with these people. Should we just, should we just you know, requisition or just seize this money, seize these assets and keep it and use it to fund the war? And the, the answer came down consciously, publicly, no, absolutely not, return every penny of of british deposits and in doing that in that act of integrity what that proved was that what was then um a, a fledgling country that was just a few decades old at this point a couple decades old um that these were serious people it was a serious government it was of integrity and after that money just came flowing into the United States. Investment came flowing into the United States from all over the world. And it speaks exactly to what is emblazoned on the currency and so forth, backed by the full faith and credit of the government of the United States of America. That actually used to mean something. Obviously, now it's a den uh, den of iniquity. And most of the people at the upper upper echelons of government should be imprisoned for the rest of their lives at minimum, and a, a non-trivial number of them have committed capital crimes. Um, and so, obviously, it doesn't it doesn't have that meaning anymore. Something has to have replaced that. And w- what that is 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 <laughs> the nuclear arsenal. Um, and even before we had a nuclear arsenal, it was just the United States military. So. It, it's funny. It we it makes us laugh, but it's also true. It's well, also absolutely true. And there, there's also the question that gets raised every once in a while: is if the U.S. currency is in such a bad state, why is it still the reserve currency? And and uh, the best analogy I've heard of this, um, probably from the Financial Sense podcast, if I, if I remember correctly, they refer to the U.S. dollar as the best house in a bad neighborhood. They're not saying mm-hmm. it's good. It's just not as bad as all the rest of them. So as long as the euro is has has countries like Italy and Greece and Spain and Portugal dragging it down. And as long as the the Chinese currency is is subject to being, uh, or the Chinese, um, well, the, the the Chinese economy is is there as long as they're tying their their currency to the dollar, and we can just export inflation to them, 
um, then we are in the strongest situation of any of the major currencies out there. I mean, who's going to challenge us, really? I mean, the British pound, they're, they're, yeah. they're down since Brexit, and they weren't that strong beforehand. Um, so it, it's, it's not that the U.S. dollar is all that. It's just that compared to everything else, what are you going to replace it with? So it's, it's you know, it, th- this is about one of the few areas where the cryptocurrency people actually have a valid point is, is that there aren't any strong currencies right now. True, but they're backed by governments with guns. And if your computer algorithms are, are going to be any threat to them whatsoever, just watch them pull those guns and shut down your servers and then, then see what it's worth. And, so. and the other thing is, is there's there's a means of redress and there's there's still a semblance of um, some sort of a judiciary system, a court system where a person can can go um, in, in first world and even second world countries if if you have money stolen from you now understand me <laughs> hearing those words come out of my mouth because obviously what happened with MF Global and why that was just such an earth-shattering event that people still don't appreciate because what MF Global did when John Corzine stole that 1.6 billion and there was no legal redress there was nowhere for those people to go the government was complicit and and an active participant the judiciary was an active participant in the MF Global theft and those people had no means of redress um that that put the whole the whole situation on a third world or worse kind of a footing where there was just nothing that you could do nowhere you could go and that's the issue as i see it with one of the main issues with cryptocurrencies there is nowhere you can go there is no means of redress and there technically isn't anything standing behind this thing you one of the the, in fact, I dare say the primary way that you judge any money, any currency, is you look at what is behind it. Every currency has to have something behind it. Back in the day, what was behind it was a king or a grand duke or a doge or an emperor or a bank, a private banking family. Or a but, warehouse at Fort Knox, Kentucky with uh, the 101st Airborne guarding it. Exactly. Or... You know, for a while with the United States, there was a government and a nation standing behind this, guaranteeing this, the rule of law, the people themselves, the culture themselves. And this goes back to my theory of money, that, you know, money is a fungible proxy for the human capacity to labor, produce and create through time. It's a proxy for people. And so what's behind ultimately every money is human beings. Well, who the hell is behind a cryptocurrency? Who Who is it? And, and kind of what they're trying to do with a cryptocurrency, it seems to me, is they're trying to take the human element out of it and say, well, in a sense, there, there's, no, there's nothing behind it. There's just the internet, or I don't even know what you would call it. There's this big nebulous nothing behind it. And and that's better than having a bunch of corrupt people behind it. Well, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's um, in, the, in the case of Bitcoin, what you're saying is that you can't trust what's behind uh, modern currency. So you're going to replace it with something that can't be fudged, which is the, the proof of work standard, which does not scale. And and there, there, there have been some links that the people sent me. I've, I've taken a look at, I forget what the name of it is. They're what they're calling third generation blockchain, which are, are, are interesting. I mean, there there is probably going to be something coming out that's going to affect financial technology or fintech, if you like abbreviations, 
that are going to be built on, on blockchain, but it's not going to be the currency. It's going to be the smart contract side of it. And I still don't think this is going to be distributed open source kind of thing. It, it, it's, it still comes back to, you know, if you're going to build a business on something and you say, hey, we're going to build everything on the Ethereum blockchain because it's open source and it's free. And it's like, so you don't have a copy of your own ledger and you are subject to the rest of the network being available for you to do transactions. This doesn't sound like a good idea, mm-hmm. at least if you're building it on PayPal and they may be a bunch of sleazy people. But at least when someone wants to pay you money, it actually will get from from their wallet to yours um, th- through the financial or through the electronic intermediary. Uh, there is something behind it. If you lose your login credentials, um, you can wait on hold for four hours and finally get a hold of somebody yeah. and authenticate yeah. who you are, but you can actually recover this stuff. And I'm just, we're beating a dead horse here because we, we've we talked about this before and, and I apologize that I didn't brought this up again. But um, I think the larger point is that, that um, I, I, we do read the emails, even though we don't always bring them up on, on the show or it takes a while to get back around to them. Yep. So there it is. The whole monetary thing. Oh, I, I hope I live to see the triumph of the Immaculate Heart and, and see how how the money situation pans out, plays out, um, just just out of nothing more than morbid curiosity at this point. How How is humanity going to move forward with the concept of money? Um, and I suspect that, that, like I said, it's going to take the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. It's going to take some sort of supernatural intervention to get human culture back to a level of integrity where you know, nation states, um, kingdoms, even, even individual banks, families can, where people have the integrity and there's enough integrity in the rule of law and just in humanity in general, um, to, to be able to stand by, stand behind money. Um, I, I hope I live to see it. Oh, me too. Well, I don't know how long it's going to be, but, uh, it, yeah, it, I know. It, would be, it would be nice <laughs> if we could see it kind of, kind of like, um, any number of things. It would be nice if it happened. Yep. I think that's a show. I think so. I've got to. I've got to hit the road here. So let's okay. do the. Let's do the end credits and wrap her up. Awesome. Uh, if you have feedback, questions, comments, emails in general, the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. I said it correctly this week. Uh, masses for Anne's benefactors Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, plus a weekly requiem. Please remember to join your intentions with those priests offering the mass. And please pray for the priests as well. As we've said in a couple of podcasts, um, or on several of them, a couple of the priests are, are deployed in places mm-hmm. where the U S military is deployed. I, I don't even know where exactly they are at the moment, but they're downrange. So keep them in your prayers. This podcast is a super nerd media production. I would like to thank JM who donated via PayPal as well as William and JP who actually mailed something in. Thank you very much for your generosity. And if you'd like to learn more and or support this project, you can learn more at supernerdmedia.com. Uh, also don't forget this Matthew seventeen twenty initiative uh, to the best of your ability fast twice a week and play, pray for a resolution to the current uh, issues surrounding and complicating the question of the papacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last time we did a podcast, we promised we'd do, or we accidentally promised we'd do one on Tuesday, and it's Tuesday, so um, it worked. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> now don't jinx it. <laughs> oh, and um, folks, can, ladies and gentlemen, go ahead. <laughs> now I'll leave it in. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, Super Nerd has an intention, um, so if you will please pray for Super Nerd's intention. Nobody's sick, everything's fine, but um, he does have an intention that that would require your prayers. So do remember super nerd in your prayers, um, this week until the next episode. And then, uh, hopefully 
hopefully we won't have to ask for that again. <laughs> yes, I'll, 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 I'll give a, a, a generic or not a generic. I won't go into great detail about it, but I'll give an update when the, the prayer intention is over and explain why it was just, I was being vague about it. But um, yes, I would greatly appreciate that uh, myself and my family as well. Very good. Until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. 